0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Lydia Bastianich. This program originally aired in 2019.
1: (laughs) Buonasera, buonasera. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you very much. Oh, what a pleasure. What a, you know, it's, it's, really touches me when I get this kind of receptions, and what it tells me is that we connect, that I connect with you in a sense with something that I love, cooking, and uh, that's important to me because uh, I love what I do, and I love sharing it, and uh, when when I connect with you, and so sometimes I get emails, uh, I get a lot of emails, but you know, Lydia, And from all over America, people that, you know, I might never get a chance to see. Lydia, last night in our house, your smells were permeating the whole house. We made this and this. And it touches me because I know that I am present with that family even though I'm not there. So thank you very much for being here. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I I, I do a, a few things, but I'm here tonight actually because of the release of uh, the paperback of My American Dream and as much as I'm known for being a chef and uh, uh, maybe a mother, grandmother, a restaurateur, uh, uh, and my cookbooks I know you you all enjoy, uh, you know, it's the first time that I wrote about my life. And I thought, I said, you know, is it, is it something that people would love to know, That would like to know? And, of course, my, my editor right away said, Lydia, of course, your story is actually a story that's very contemporary, what's, what's going on. It's an immigrant story of coming to America. And, uh, you know, I was blessed with getting the opportunity or having the opportunity to become who I have become. So maybe maybe just a little bit of, of history. I know you have, you, you, you'll get the book, Uh, Please enjoy it, and we'll have some questions with Peter and your questions. But let me just kind of run through a little bit of my life uh, so that I put it into a context. So Italy, if you're looking at Italy, in the right-hand side, by Venice, all the way up that way, so let's see, if I'm turning, you will be on that side. Uh, Italy will be on that side. There's a little peninsula called Istria. Istria is now Croatia, but it was Italy. And uh, after World War II... It was given to the new because Italy lost the war. It was given to the new, fo- newly formed uh, communist Yugoslavia under Marshal Tito. So I was just born actually in that in that period because the war ended at 44. Uh, the Allied forces were hanging around there for until the 47 to decide where actually would the border. Go and who, belo- who, what belongs to who? Who, who sort of deserves what? Not unlike what's going on in the world today. And in 1947, in February, uh, I think it was 26 or 27, uh, the Paris Treaty was signed, and the Paris Treaty really delineated the border where Italy would end and communist Yugoslavia would begin, and Istria and part of that part of Italy. Was given to 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 Yugoslavia, and so I was just born there. Uh, in that period, I was born February forty seven, the twenty first. So I was just a few few days, I guess, when the change came over. But the idea was that there's, you know, ethnically, that area was very Italian. Actually, three hundred and fifty thousand ethnic Italians moved back into Italy and into the world as a result of. Uh, World War II and, and the oncoming of this communism. But we, we got caught behind uh, the Iron Curtain, and uh, I grew up in a situation that was communist. That we were, our names were changed. We were not allowed to go to church. We were not allowed to speak Italian. So it was difficult. Uh, my mother was an elementary school teacher. Uh, and, but, you know, when you live on borders like that, you speak more than one language. You are ethnically one. Uh, you, you belong to one ethnicity more than any others. But you kind of on a border. You know to communicate, you do do speak. So we did speak Croatian. Uh, uh, now it's Croatian. Then it was Yugoslavian. It's much the same language, more or less. Uh, and um, she's you know she was really uh, taken and indoctrinated in the, the communists and teaching the children that my father was. Uh, um, Uh, mechanic. He had two little uh, trucks, actually, and they took that away. They deemed him a capitalist, put him in jail for for quite a few months, and ultimately, so things really began to be tough for my parents. My mother, uh, you know, uh, was was wise wise enough, I guess, to put myself and my brother with my grandmother. Now, my grandmother was about maybe three, four kilometers out of the city, and uh, for me, uh, that was a, a, even even when I recall it now, was an idyllic place because food was scarce, and Grandma and Grandpa would supply food for the whole family, not just our family, but my aunts and so on. And we helped. So we were in Grandma's courtyard, we had ducks, we had chickens, we had goats, uh, you know, milking the goats in the morning. We had pigs every November. The slaughter, two pigs, we would make sausages, blood sausages, you know, the bacon, the prosciutto, all of that. And then, of course, the extension of the garden and the yard. Again, you know, as the seasons came came around, spring peas, favas, artichokes. And I was the little runner, so was my brother. You know, we were the little runners helping grandma and grandpa in all of these uh, chores. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, it's my connection to food really goes back to that period in time. Because I remember, you know, the, the smells and uh, the aromas of rosemary, of sage. I mean, I used to help Grandma uh, get, gather the potatoes from the ground and she would, with the hoe, and I was in back, uh, she would get the big potatoes. I would go with my little basket and get the little ones from the earth. And, you know, I can still recall those potatoes were warm in my hands. And when you, when you touch the, the tomatoes also are warm, almost like they had life. But uh, my passion for food and my kind of uh, 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 reference library, if you will, for flavors, I attributed to that period in my life where I was tasting everything as it was in season, intense in flavor, uh, you know, pristine, and none none of these chemicals and whatever. And when uh, 10 years later, in 1956, my parents decided that maybe they needed to move on because it wasn't getting any better. Uh, um, We had relatives on the other side of the border and uh, the plot was that we were going to go visit a sick aunt in Trieste. Now, as children, we didn't know that, but uh, not all of us got the visa. My father had to remain as as a hostage. They knew if they gave the whole family the visa, that we would not come back. So we went over, the three of us, my brother, my mother, and I. My aunt wasn't as sick as it was meant to be, but you know. Uh, I, I I didn't uh, make anything out of it. But about two weeks later, uh, uh, really in the middle of the night, ultimately, a knock on the door and my mother crying, my aunt also crying, my father appeared. He had escaped. He escaped uh, uh the border, he was shot at, he, the dogs ran after him, the scent dogs, but he made it. And uh, uh, that's after a few uh, days, I realized that we are not going back and that I had an unfinished business, that I had not said goodbye to grandma, to grandpa, to my goats, to my friends. And uh, I think that, you know, the connection with, with food and aromas is what I brought with me. So I remember cooking even with my great-great-an in Trieste and trying to cap- recapture all the flavors that I remember from grandma. And for the rest of my life, uh, my communicator has been the food, my passion, my love for food, and always trying to capture those, those aromas that I recall as a child because that brought me close to grandma. And I know a lot of you, when I talk about it, a lot of you, oh, did you see grandma? I did see grandma. <laughs> I, saw, I saw grandma about 10, 10 years uh, after I went back, actually, with my husband uh, on, on my honeymoon, actually. And so, uh, you know, she was still in that courtyard still. And till this day, I go back. I go back to that courtyard. It's, it's empty now, really. You know, the cousins, uh, the youngsters are in the cities and they have gone. Uh, but I found, I find still peace in solens. There was a, a pine forest right behind it and we used to go forage there with grandma for wild asparagus every spring or for for um, um, the wild chicory, the dandelion. The and I still do that. I'm gonna go there in April because I can't miss spring there. I just, it just takes me back and it gives me sort of a re, uh, re reassesses me, rebalances me. In, but in Trieste, I, and I'm gonna make it so fast forward because I know that uh, uh, Peter will ask me a lot of questions. We ended up, because we were refugees, we didn't have the papers, we ended up uh, uh, asking for asylum, my parents did, and ultimately we ended up in a political refugee camp for two years, uh, stayed there, awaited uh, for an opportunity to, to get accepted by by uh, At that time, it was Canada, it was uh, the United States, um, uh, Argentina was also taking in people. So um, of course, you know, our, our first choice was America. And in 1958, Dwight Eisenhower was the president and he did open immigration for people fleeing communism. And we were one of the first family. And, <laughs> Thank you. We, 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 had, we, uh, we had nobody, in a sense, here. The Catholic Relief Services brought us here. Then we researched after a while, because I know one of my cousins is right in this, in this audience. We found out that Grandma Rosa's sister lived in Pennsylvania, near uh, actually Sunbury and Chemoken and there, and ultimately we reunited with them. But initially, we, we didn't have anybody to connect to, and the Catholic charity brought us here, and uh, you know, uh, it, it the 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 amazing um, opportunity that we had as an immigrant family, four of us, not having any uh, connections, not having money, that we were given, we were taken in, we were brought to America, we were given an opportunity. Uh, to, first they put us in a little hotel, fed us there, then found a job for my father, found a little home. And I can't tell you how uh, how much the neighbors themselves, the Italian community, the Red Cross, helped us, helped us to furnish our house. People would come with chairs, with towels, with, with sheets, with bagfuls of food. Uh, you know, I was 12 years old uh, at that time, and I really recall... Um, this kind of welcome. And I recall how happy I was that finally I'm going to be in one place, that I'm going to be secure, that I'm going to have roots, and I am forever grateful uh, to America because there is no place in the whole world like America. (laughs) And so, you know, I felt... I have to, you know, uh, I mean, the opportunities, the, the 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 living well, and all these, this um, kind of look at, you know, having all of you speaking to you. This is, for me, is a tremendous uh, uh, achievement and opportunity that I I was given, and I certainly uh, want to pay homage to to that opportunity and to all of those that gave me that opportunity in continuing to kind of maybe share share. Uh, what can happen if you give somebody a chance or an opportunity uh, to? Uh, yes, you know, when we came, coming here, the two years in camp, it was, they were long two years. We were vetted. We were quarantined. We were, but at the end, you know, when they sort of uh, said, you know, this is a good, healthy family, a family that will work. Uh, we want to welcome them in America. And we were literally... Welcomed here, you know. With the, I remember when we met with the social worker, and um, the social worker initially you would meet uh, uh, every week, and they spoke Italian, and they put us first in the hotel, and then they would give us, give my parents some money for, for us, for my parents to feed us until they found a job for my father and a home for us. And I recall my mother, she would kind of put down write down every uh, uh, amount of money that she got. And after a year, we would go visit them, uh, the social workers. Once a year, they wanted to know how we were doing. And uh, once my parents worked, she accumulated the money, and she she went on the meeting, and she said, this is how much I owe you. I want to pay you back. And... (laughs) And uh, uh, she, I recall, you know, because my mother was crying, she said, the social worker says, no, you keep this. You continue to spend it on your children because we want you to be part of America. So that was, was, you know, as an immigrant, this is what I recall. So I, uh, you know, I can't be grateful enough. And certainly the time is when I feel I need to give back and and share and do as much as I can for people that need it out there. And, of course, to do what I love, and that is, you know, cook and my show and whatever. Uh, uh, And, of course, I think you all know uh, family is uh, so important to me, I think, you know, because when we first came here, I mean, the roots of the Italian family, then coming and traveling and not having anybody else except the four of us, Family kind of was the security, if you will, uh, uh, that we had, my brother and I, and uh, we still remained in, I always remain in that mode, but that's very Italian. My mother, 98, I know you all love her because uh, <laughs> she is fine, she lives with me, and when I come back, she's going to ask me all about what happened. <laughs> And I tell her, I says, you know, Grandma, you're more popular than I am. They all ever... <laughs> and, uh, and she says, oh, no, no, you worked hard. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, my success is based on the, all the good people, but certainly on my whole family. And I always tell my children and everybody, uh, we did what we did because we were together as a family and the support of the family. So I think there's much more to, to be said. Uh, I really want to thank you very much for being here. I think we'll have a little bit of music, and then we'll come back out for some questions. So think about some good questions for me. Thank you very much.
0: Lydia Bastianich, thank you very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. This is just an incredible honor.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for being here with me. Uh,
0: it's just so wonderful. And your book was wonderful. And uh, one moment in your book that I, I want to point out uh, that I found particularly meaningful was there was a moment towards the end where you, you pivot the narration from addressing the reader to addressing your grandchildren. And you say, I'm paraphrasing here, that this story is for, for you, my, my beloved grandchildren. Um, because I think you wanted them to know your story, right? Where, where you came from, um, both uh, from an immigration standpoint but also from a business person standpoint, how you got to this moment in your life, how you got to become the person they know as, as their grandmother. Um, is that an accurate description of why you chose to write this for them?
1: Uh, absolutely, you know, I always involved, as I was talking, my family and my children and my grandchildren, and I we go back to Italy, we go back to Istria. I took every single one of them to the camp, show them the room that, that we spent two years in. And, uh, because the camp I, we
0: should mention, this is where you you spent in detention, in San Saba,
1: was it? San Saba in Trieste, Saba. right? Mm-hmm. Now it's a museum, so if mm-hmm. any of you go there, Go and visit it. I was on the second floor on the left side, <laughs> middle. <laughs> it's it's kind of it, it had burnt since, uh, but uh, so so uh, it is very important for me that my children uh, certainly uh, and especially the new, next generation, my grandchildren, understand uh, what it it takes, you know, to, to to make a good life, a healthy life and I don't want them ever to take for granted the opportunities that we were given and in turn that they have and that they, um, they need to um, give to this world. Uh, first, I always tell them you need to develop yourself, become the best you can, mm-hmm. and then you need to incorporate the rest of the world in your life. Mm-hmm. So I don't want them to ever forget or take for granted the opportunity that their family was given.
0: Mm-hmm. You came to America and, as you mentioned, you got some assistance from Catholic charities. You and your family worked very, very hard. Um, and you always had this love for food. What made you um, and your family decide I need to start a restaurant. Because I think a lot of us, right, we've made a really good sauce at one point. And we're like, you know, we could do this restaurant thing like someday professionally. But you actually took the step to do that.
1: Well, you know, it, I won't take it the credit personally. I you know, food was always the, the the growing of it, the making of it, the lack of food. You know, when I was in the camp, you had to go online for food with a little plate and whatever you were given, that's what you had. And then coming here, and the opportunities uh, of food, and ultimately building my life around food. So food always had a big uh, part. We is a big part of my life. But actually, the person that got me into the business was my husband. And he was also an immigrant. We met here in in New York. Uh, But he was working in the restaurant business, the front of the house, as we call it. You know, uh, waiters, major D, and so on. And he was the one, after we had our first child, uh, that uh, now... Even after I was married, I would work part-time in, in restaurants and so on. And he wanted to open a restaurant. So I said, okay, I'll help you. And he f- we found this little nine-table uh, restaurant in Forest Hills. And, uh, you know, we dived in with all of the money that we had, my mother's money, everybody. Everybody sort of chipped in. And, uh, and I wasn't a chef by then. So we hired a chef because I didn't feel... Confident enough to be a chef. I was young. Uh, I just didn't have any restaurant experience, big restaurant experience. But what I decided was that I would become his sous chef. So I went in the kitchen as the sous chef for 10 years. I kind of worked with him, really honed down my skills in the kitchen. But also thereafter, I realized how much I didn't know. So Every visit to Italy, vacation in summer, I would go in Italy and work with chefs in Italy. i take courses in the science of food. All, all that interests me. And uh, for 10 years, I kind of honed my skills as a chef. And then, by then, we were successful because the food was good. So with him, with this chef in the kitchen, he cooked Italian-American food, but I began slowly to add my specialties, you know, like risotto and polenta, and people loved it. I said, uh-huh. So so b- by then, by then we, ha- we had two restaurants, we sold them, and we opened for in 1981 <laughs> on, on 58th Street, and that's where I became the chef, and I cooked the regional food of Italy.
0: And you just glossed over one of the most stressful moments of the book, I think, selling two restaurants and then buying the one in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, you describe just how stressful that was and Mm -hmm. how you buy a place and then you realize, oh no, this needs a lot more work
1: than I thought.
0: But, um, and you also describe yourself as kind of a a natural risk taker, believing that your your hard work would sort of see you through.
1: Well, I think so, you know, that uh, I think uh, if you see an opportunity, you need to analyze it and, uh, you know, see if you wanna take that opportunity, if it'll make you grow and ultimately if you're prepared for that opportunity. But yes, we sold both restaurants in Queens that we had in those 10 years, and we leveraged all of that money into building Philidia. But you know, we made our plans, our budgets, but a lot of out-of-budget items came on the agenda. I mean, the whole building needed underpinning. What did I know about underpinning? Yes. But. <laughs> But unless unless we underpinned the building, it would have collapsed because it was the old buildings, the brownstones with, with bricks, you know, and, and not even the mortar. It was just kind of a sand. And so that was a, a $300,000 of, bu- of a budget, and we just didn't have it. Yeah. So we, we really, we almost didn't open it. I remember, you know, for the workers just wanting to finish, I would cook. You know, I had like a little guest. I would cook for the workers so they would work late so that they would say, I mean, I was trying to, 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 to tempt them. The only way I could was with good. And uh, uh, we ultimately opened not finishing everything. You know, the dining room where the people would see and the bathroom, that. but the cellar wasn't finished. This part of the kitchen were not finished. Well, we opened and we got started. And, you know, the, the revenue started coming in and then we continued. So it was, we almost didn't make it. Yeah.
0: Can you tell us about the moment that uh, Julia Child and James Beard made an appearance in your kitchen? Because you did not have much warning that they were coming. No, no. Well, you see,
1: there I was. So it was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, You know, this Italian young woman chef. I mean, all the chefs in in New York were the French haute chefs, you know, with their... Mm -hmm. And I was simple. I had my slippers in the kitchen. That's how simple I... (laughs) You know, the... the, And... uh, um, uh, But who is she cooking? So the press... Came and you know uh, what, what is what is polenta or risotto or all of these yotta. I made yotta. I bet you don't even know what yotta is. I do not know what that okay. is. Okay, I'll tell you quickly. Please do pasta fagioli, bean and, okay. and macaroni. But instead, up north there, where we would put instead of pasta, sauerkraut. In the beans and potatoes, so it's yotta. So if you go to Trieste, especially in the winter, ask for yotta. So I was cooking. I was cooking these things. So of course the press said, "What is she cooking?" And uh, once the press get involved, then everybody else gets curious. And one evening, uh, there appeared. I mean, they they called, but you know, it was still uh, Julia Child and James Beard. I mean, they were towering figures. They were big, both big. <laughs> And uh, so we gave them the best, the biggest table. And, of course, I went out and I talked to them. What she wanted is, was risotto with mushrooms. She wanted to eat it. She loved it. She wanted to know how to make it, whether I would teach her. She came back. Ultimately, she even came to the house, and I taught her how to make the risotto, she loved it. We remained friends actually until her very end. But the thing that made difference is that she asked me to come on her show. She had the Master Chef series then, and we did two episodes. And you know that was my entree into the into the TV uh, TV world.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I have more questions about your career in TV, but I ask. I want to ask one more question about. About immigration, uh, and that is, um, you know, you're describing America as a place of opportunity for you. Do you feel someone coming over from Italy or another country right now could, through just grit and determination like you've shown, sort of achieve something similar?
1: Is it possible now? I think it's still possible. America is still full of opportunities. I think the getting here it's more selective and difficult and all of that but I think if if somebody comes here uh, with the the right entrees being vetted having all the papers and you know having some sort of a specialty you know uh, that they can offer to to America America is open and America is growing and America wants to new things and people, and the one thing that you absolutely need to succeed is to roll up your sleeve and work, and work hard.
0: So okay, TV question. To what extent did you come naturally to television, and, and, uh, and what did you sort of need to learn as you were uh, becoming a person seen on TV?
1: Well, I, you know, I had not done. I had some interviews here and there, but I had not done uh, 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 television. Uh, but um, what what happened? The the producer, uh, Julia's producer, asked me, uh, you know, Lydia, you're pretty good. How about a show? And I knew that I wa- <laughs> So you know, I thought about it two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> And, but I did I did I wanted two things and one of the things was that I wanted to be on PBS because you know what what public television for that matter radio uh, offers is an intelligent discussion an intelligent presentation of something and I wanted to be part of because I wanted to share my passion my country my culture with America America was good enough to accept accept me and I wanted to tell them who I was. And the second option that I uh, that I uh, that I asked for was that it's filmed in my house. Now for that, the first I'm on television 20 years now. I think the first 15 years were all filmed in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that was because I was not used to studios. I figured if I'm in my kitchen, I know my my range, I know everything. <laughs> I know where the knife is and whatever. And so it did work because in my house I was very comfortable. But uh, I did want to communicate, and what I, what I made a conscious decision, because I was watching Julia, of course, on PBS, was that she was not about herself in showing her capabilities as a chef, but she wanted to transcend the lens and reach the audience out there, and she wanted them to cook. And I said that's what I wanted to do. So in a sense, she was my mentor. And she did tell me, she said, you know, Lydia, you do for Italian food what I did for French food. And the question for me was, uh, you know, I wanted to reach to the people out there and have them cook the food that I loved. That I think was, you know, if I can show how much I know, how long could that last? You know, you need to... If, if somebody gives me half an hour of their time, their precious time, and watches me, uh, then they better take something away from it. I better share, give them something. But I love it because with every piece of information, as I was saying before, my aromas, my flavors, permeate their house, so we have a deal going.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've said that the food industry
1: is tough on women, uh, what makes it so tough? It is it is a tough industry. is a tough industry because it is physically hard. It is scheduling hard for a woman, and especially once a woman begins to think about a family, and it's just a lot of tension and pressure. And uh, you know, it was an industry that, uh, especially in the kitchen. Uh, the blowing off of steam, literally, uh, was was kind of almost okay. Now you know. Well, I wait, can, wait,
0: what do you mean by that, blowing off? Of I steam? I mean, you
1: know, if, if a chef was mad and threw the pot in the, in the sink with everything, or they would chase somebody out, get you know, uh, and so on. That was kind of you know part of the uh, part of the game. Now, in Italy, you know, maybe one of the reasons why I kind of all these hurdles, I went over this hurdle. Because in Italy, women's, women are in the kitchen. The, the kitchen is a woman's domain. Even in restaurants, you know, now you have the chefs with the toque. But but you know, in, in the restaurants around Italy, the women were in the kitchen, the wife was in the kitchen, the husband was prancing around the front. So, <laughs> 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 so you know, for me, for me, it was okay to be in the kitchen. You know, I, I felt comfortable. I'm going to take this over. There's there's no problem. But I think also I was blessed with the fact that it was a family business. My husband was up front, and so. But uh, along the way, uh, I, you know, getting ever more involved in, in the industry and doing events with other chefs. Yes, women had, had a hard time, and I think things are certainly changing, which is great. And the hard time of being maybe uh, uh, a bit abused is, 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 is bad enough, but the question was that they didn't have the opportunity to own restaurants, to be because that's when you're really the boss, hmm. when you own or whatever. And what I found out, especially when I had difficulties with building for Lydia, and my husband got sick and i went to the bank and they wouldn't give me a loan because until i brought my husband you know the financial institutions are not considering women enough in supporting them in opening restaurants
0: still this was definitely still, something you encountered
1: still actually uh, about 15 years ago i was one of the founders of the group women chefs and restaurant tours and it's still an organization that goes very well. And the idea was actually, was not kind of a, a, a gathering of women to kind of lament, but it was one to bring uh, women chefs in contact with uh, f- the financial, financial world, bankers and American Express, so that they have an opportunity, that they understand that women are capable of doing this. And this is when you really get the power when you are the boss.
0: So there's the financial aspect of that's the restaurant a, industry being. That's a,
1: still a big thing for m- women to move up.
0: Mm-hmm. And 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 there's also some chatter about the the culture of the restaurant industry being some something of a boys' club. Um, is that true in your case? Oh, culture? absolutely.
1: I mean, I think it's much less. It, it was and as I say. You know, I was um, uh, a little protected because of the family situation. But when I am asked to speak, uh, uh, and inevitably, you know, there's always questions uh, uh, of my advice to women, and I always say, the number one, the thing that you owe yourself is to, is to invest in yourself as a woman. You know, don't look at the gender aspect. Look as that profession. Get the best that you can be. Invest in yourself and be the best that you can be in that profession. And then you go out there and you make it happen. You know, you show that you're better than the other guy, the guy that's next to you. And that will get you, you know, because if you have a good product, people will understand. The one thing also that's important of women out there is, and I tell them is, you have to respect everybody and you have to demand respect.
0: Along those lines, we have a question from the audience. Have you ever experienced harassment in your career?
1: I I think, you know, when you're young and whatever, absolutely, you know, there's, and again, I was uh, uh, always uh, uh, in the family situation, but when you went out and you did or events or other things, inevitably, you know, there was that, that word or that uh, smirk or whatever. Yes, but I think, you know, if you stand your ground as a woman and you're secure of yourself, mm-hmm. Uh, that you stand a much better chance. And you know, if it doesn't just move on. You know? Can you
0: can you tell us an example of the time that, that you did have to stand your ground in, in a moment like that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I yeah, you know, you walk and they they you, they, they, they touch your butt, but so you turn mm-hmm. around and you smack them.
0: That gives them the message. Yeah. Yeah. Um Another question from the audience. Uh, did you ever confront Mario Batali about his behavior? Did, assuming you knew about
1: it. Uh, I didn't know the, the depth of his behavior. Uh, I think, you know, uh, the going out and drinking and whatever, you know, that's not, we were partners. But, you know, he was a mature man, and uh, I was not up to, he always considered me as his mother, you know, a second mother, or whatever. But, uh, and we talked about health-wise, he was uh, at one point he had a aneurysm or whatever, so we talked about drinking and all of that. But, um, you know, I was, being a partner, I was in a pos- position to reprimand him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know everything else that went on. You uh, did You did no, or not? No, did not? No.
0: Yeah. Did you, uh, And your son Joe was, was both business partners and friends with him. Did you worry about Joe? I mean, he he seems well, to have done a lot of partying I, I think, with Mario. You
1: know, as I said, I don't I don't think that you know I knew everything else. I was always, you know, telling them and whatever, you know, make sure you get your rest, make sure you don't overdrink, you make sure you know the same things that mothers always do. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't different because I was a chef and their partner. Actually, it put me in in a, you know like like I was in a sense um, their their mother, if you will, almost mm-hmm. almost their their home, but. They were they were the partners. So yes, you know you always have uh, something to say. And I, my son, I was naturally more free than I was with Mario.
0: Naturally, mothers are, tend to be free with their sons. Yes. Um, when you so when you read your son Joe's book, what what was your response to that? Both the good and the, the not so great passages. Well, I
1: there? you know I told him I said you know uh, that book. Uh, I think some of the play uh, some of the things are really. Good describe the restaurant industry, especially in the beginning. and I think some of some of the things were sens- sensationalistic in a sense, you know, just to create that. And I told him that. And I think also what's what's happened a lot with 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 food now, especially even in the food show, you know, is this sensationalism with food. Why do we need to? go overboard with anything, you know?
0: Are you referring to, like, the shows that have, like, food contests and stuff?
1: Contests and all this kind of mess, and I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, um, yeah, I think that, you know, there's a reality because uh, food, as I said, you know, the the, the having of food, they're having not of food, it, you really appreciate food, and food should be respected and appreciated and should be... Uh, um, should never be wasted, should never be played with, you know, and uh, I feel very strongly about that, and uh, you know, uh, this is, this is, so those shows sometimes um, are not really the reality of food, but I'll tell you one thing, Peter. Um, What I do appreciate about the shows, and you know, the food network and all of that, even though uh, the shows that they air are neither here nor there, is that they brought an awareness of food to the public. Mm. So what you see out of that is this uh, re-entrance, but going back now to 10, 15 years, of people to food. And maybe the idea of, I can cook, I can go in the kitchen, I can do, and that I love because I think when somebody understands food and doesn't depend on somebody else to be fed or to, to, that really demands good quality food, food that is Healthy food that is in season, that watches the, the our our our, uh, our um, environment and all of that. I think that you know we are going back into a direction that I feel comfortable in. So uh, these shows and all of that had a, a, a play in all of that, even though some of those shows really are not worth the time of the.
0: <laughs> I guess we all have our favorite different. Food shows, cooking shows. Um, one more question uh, about um, restaurant culture, food industry culture, and and it has to do with um, your your company going forward. What do you plan on doing to make sure that the, the environment is is supportive and, and not toxic for anybody? And, and perhaps a follow-up question to that is, what should the rest of the industry be doing to make sure that the culture is a healthy one for those
1: working in well, it? Well, for us, it was difficult because Mario was a partner, Mm -hmm. so we had to get him out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it took more than a year, I think, uh, it was uh, 10 days ago that we finally signed the contract and we bought his shares. And um, I think, again, we're going to base it on a family. My daughter got very much into it. I mean, she's been with me in the business, the books, the television. Kansas City and Pittsburgh she's been running those restaurants and focusing more maybe on empowering women but having all the uh, the needs for for the the restaurant industry you know a handbook, knowing that they have the uh, human uh, HR department, that they they can talk to somebody, that somebody will listen. Now, we, we have our, our head chef at Del Posto, our, you know, Michelin star and uh, uh, was it Five, four or five-star restaurant, is a woman, a young woman. Uh, Melissa Rodriguez, she is wonderful. Our partner's Nancy Silverton, so there's, we are a lot of women in, in our this in, in our company, and we're gonna make that ever more uh, present, and work within that, uh, in, the, in, in that, uh, you know, the rules, uh, the honest rule of people working, working, uh, having a place to work comfortably, uh, to be respected. Uh, a possibility of growth and so on we are making uh, opportunities for people to actually become partners in different uh, in different parts of our business as we grow uh, uh, they can grow with us and specifically uh, of the capable women in our company
0: mm-hmm. so you have cooked for two popes pope benedict pope francis what was that
1: like Heavenly. <laughs> no, you know I got to tell you when I came home when they told me. Well, let me tell you first how how I got into into into. Then I'll tell you what Grandma said. Uh, I I you know in this circle of of uh, being you know really appreciating what uh, people have done for me, there comes a t- time ever more that you feel like you need to give something back. So I do a lot of. Uh, uh, humanitarian and uh, fundraising for uh, for different organizations in need. And I work with the United Nations closely. In a sense, um, for the last 10 years, I worked with UNIFEM, United Nations Female Organization. Now it's part of a bigger uh, organization at the United Nations. But uh, that was an organization that specifically worked with a single-parent woman in third-world countries. And that is that a, a, a woman that had a, a family, you know, was a seamstress, would sew one dress enough to feed the family. There were these microloans, and that just kind of uh, excited me. A microloan where we the, the organization would lend the money to buy a sewing machine to the women. No, that's a 300 $400 investment, not much. And these women now can cook, can can sew three, four dresses and feel much better about themselves and feed the family. So empowering the women to do what they can. And uh, you know that more than 90% of these loans were returned by these women? I mean, it's amazing. And now now I'm working with with an organization also at the United Nations where uh, every child that is in, in a refugee camp, and being in a refugee camp, I can really relate, loses two years of education, so not in this United States, but around the world, these camps that you see, children lose two years of their education, so when finally they do make uh, a, a place, they do reach a place where they can kind of continue to live, they are two years behind. So uh, the United Nations is collecting money to build schools in these refugee camps. So uh, I work with them, and they have a a most unusual idea, and I love that, is where people can make a dinner even in their house. And the universities really responded to it. Charge for that dinner, whatever you want, $20 to your friends, neighbors, and that's the donation. So you make a dinner, charge for it, and then that's the donation, so it's, dinner with Lydia, in a sense, and, and so that's, so working in the United Nations and doing events, I would do events at the, at the delegate's dining room. I met the nuncio, from the, which is the ambassador from the Vatican, and he asked me to do some things when he had events, but when uh, Pope Benedict was coming, he came and he said, Lydia, would you consider cooking for the Pope? And I said, sure. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I thought he was joking. But, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, he says, no, no, I'm serious. He's coming and I will let you know. And sure enough, it evolved that he did come. And, you know, I was nervous in the beginning. You begin to communicate with the Vatican, send the menu and ideas. And now, you know, the Pope, uh, the popes, when they travel, they don't go to hotels or restaurants. They usually go into the nuncio's house, which is the ambassador's, the Vatican's ambassador's home. And that's where I cooked. You know, there was a double brownstone on 72nd Street in New York, uh, right off Fifth Avenue. And he had his little room upstairs, and then there was the dining room and my kitchen. So you know, it's like living in this. And it was extraordinary for because it is really like living. With, I mean, he would come down for for breakfast. You know, had his meeting, lunch. So what? It was extraordinary. So I'm going to tell you now. You guys have to look at me. What my mother said. So I came home. And I says, Ma, you won't believe who they asked me to cook for. She says, who? You cooked for presidents. You cooked for uh, personality, Sophia and Gina Lolo-Brigida. I says, Mom, they asked me to cook for the Pope. And she goes, and next, who are you going to cook for next? <laughs> and I said, I says, I'm not going there yet. I'm not
0: <laughs> What an incredible experience.
1: It was extraordinary. <laughs> Pope Francis was, was another. you know I mean, he ended up coming in the kitchen. So Pope Francis is known to escape from the secret serviceman all the time, right? In Rome, I think he goes to get his pizza with him. Well, anyway, So uh, secret servicemen. The, the, the nuncio's house is considered Vatican territory, so they had this Italian secret servicemen. The whole house was filled with them, right on the trestle outside. Was all the American, so it was full of Secret Service. You know, uh, God forbid, on whose watch? It's something he mm-hmm. would have. And and so um, we were. After we had lunch, we made lunch for them. We were the whole staff was sitting around the kitchen table, and we were having coffee. And there was a long hallway, and there he comes whisking with his white. Uh, comes in the Pope. The Pope. We all jumped up, and and behind him a whole slew of of uh, of uh, Secret Service men oh, papa I qui, Where's the papa? You know, they were because he escaped, but he came in the kitchen and he asked, "Posso avere un caffè con voi? May I have a coffee with you? And we did. My daughter actually ran, she made a coffee, and he spent 15 minutes with us talking to each one of us, and ultimately, you know, he went into his pocket and he got everybody uh, blessed, uh, a blessed rosary. So it was it was extraordinary. He was quite quite connected uh, to to people.
0: Mm-hmm. We've got several questions about food from the audience. Okay. Um, We'll get to those in a moment. I did want to ask you a question about food that is personally meaningful for you. Um, Is there one food that just either unlocks a memory for you or just means a lot to you? It doesn't have to be the most delicious thing you've ever had, but something that is personally meaningful to you.
1: I think, you know, all of us have these recall moments yeah. of food, of flavors, of aromas, and, you know, uh, certainly I have a lot of those. But I think that what really kind of, I remember Sunday uh, uh, Sunday gnocchis for Sunday with uh, with the chicken that the Saturday before, Grandma twisted the neck and made a sauce with. And that we got ooze over
0: here from the gnocchi and then ooze over here from the <laughs> ch- chicken neck.
1: <laughs> but you know, that's, that's what, you know, I, I mean I, I had to help her, that's what it was. She would catch a chicken and that was Sunday's meal for everybody and she used every part of the chicken, the head and the feet and all of that, made a great brodo soup and then with the rest of the chicken made a sauce and then gnocchi, or pasta, tagliatelle. But I remember gnocchi, I loved gnocchi. And grandma, when she really had time and felt, she made she made for us, for the kids, gnocchi dolci, which, which is the gnocchi dough, and inside, especially when the plums, the Italian plums were in season, oh. she would pit it, put it in the middle with a little bit of sugar, close it into a ball, and then cook it, boil it until the gnocchi was cooked, and the, and the prune inside, the, the plum inside was cooked. And then she would have some breadcrumbs, toasted breadcrumbs in butter with cinnamon and sugar. And she would take this gnocchi out of the water, roll it in this, it looked like a snowball with all the cinnamon and all of that. And we, I loved it, us kids love that.
0: That sounds so good. I didn't, you're killing me right now because I haven't had dinner yet. You asked for it. <laughs> I know, you I know, it's for... fine, it's totally fair. <laughs> okay, questions from the audience. Um, Uh, someone wrote in to say, I love raisins in meatballs for a touch of sweetness. My
1: wife disagrees. What do you think? (laughs) You know, Italy has 20 regions, and every single region cooks things differently. So the raisins in the meatballs is definitely Sicily. So whoever he is, he has some Sicilian roots. (laughs) Us up north... We make our polpeter, our meatball, no raisins. So she might have been from the north. <laughs>
0: so you prefer without the raisins? Is well, I,
1: you know, I like them both because yeah. in Sicily, not only the raisins, they put also pignoli nuts, and it is that different kind of flavor. And uh, but you know, if I go to the meatballs of my my memories, they're usually with a lot of parsley and some garlic. They're not with raisins. Okay. Uh,
0: Another quick question, perhaps it's a quick question, I don't know. Uh, What type of pan is best for frying fish?
1: Okay, frying is, so it is fish or whatever, uh, you know, it's that you have an abundant amount of fat that whatever you're frying in is kind of uh, covered and uh, that it reaches a certain temperature, you know, the good temperature. Um, I like uh, for frying a, a deep, deep pan Uh, so that, you know, a a, a sauté pan, and if you bring the oil hot, it tends to go over, and uh, so you want to protect yourself, a deep pan, A little thick pan because you want the temperature to remain if you're frying things you want the temperature to remain constant you don't want it to drop down because then it absorbs oil if it's too high then it burns the outside and the inside is not cooked so you want a constant so a temperature frying temperature uh, thermometer is always a good idea and uh, a nice thick pan and that it's deep and high and that the oil is kind of maybe halfway into that pan.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you make a good polenta?
1: Polenta, you know, we're called polentoni up there where I come <laughs> from. We eat a lot of polentoni. Like the the, the Tuscans are mangiafagioli, fagioli, you know, they eat a lot of beans. But, uh, you know, corn only came to Italy after the discovery of America. It's a new world food. Mm-hmm. And that part where we come from, Friuli and all of that, uh, uh it was famished. something like uh uh for for the the irish the potato mm-hmm. the polenta was for my region the region that i come from and uh, uh, a good polenta is is you know, a coarsely milled polenta, but that one because I like the texture, the rough texture, it reminds me of the corn. But that takes about 45 minutes to cook. And what it, what you cook when you cook polenta. So versus the instant polenta, I think mm. the instant polenta is much finer, and it gives you good results as well. And it cooks in 15-20 minutes. Flavoring, though, is important in both cases. I always put uh, certainly a little bit of salt. I put a little bit of olive oil. And I put two or three fresh bay leaves to give it that flavor. Mm-hmm. So you and then you have to mix it because polenta will stick. You have to mix it, go into the corners and mix it and uh, you know, you have to get it into a nice density. Usually if you follow the recipe on the box or the bag of how much water versus polenta, you will get to the to the right thing. But don't be afraid to add, you know, if you say, oh my God, my polenta's not cooked, and it's densening and it's, uh, up. You can add water to it after and just mix it in. On the other hand, if it's too loose, you just have to keep on cooking, and you know how polenta plops all over the place. You have to be, you have to be, you have to be careful so you don't scorch yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there a special thing that you love to add to polenta? I think once a- the
1: polenta is cooked, then in the polenta itself, you can really have fun with it. You can mm-hmm. add vegetables. You can add cheese towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think basically vegetables and cheese are... But some, how do you
0: have fun with it? How, what, you if know you're going to sit I, down for polenta, what are you adding to it at the end? Uh,
1: if I, my favorite polenta is a nice coarse polenta. I make separately uh, s- um, savoy cabbage and potato mash, savoy cabbage and potato, yeah. and a nice slice of Gorgonzola cheese, all that, and that's a great meal for me.
0: Someone in the audience wanted to know, when do you use shallots instead of onions? Uh,
1: shallots, you know, it's an onion. Uh, it, it it's it, the skin is thinner. It's a bit sweeter, and it disintegrates more uh, more readily into into a sauce or something. So you know. Certainly you see the, the, the French chefs use it all the time because they like their sauce, velvety and all of that. So uh, you use uh, shallot. If you're gonna use it together, sometimes you can mix. You first put the onion in and then the shallot because the shallot takes about half of the time of the onions to saute. Uh, so you know, it's you just the cooking time and uh, the, it, it will disintegrate. We make sure that it doesn't burn on you when you're cooking.
0: Someone from the audience asked, "What is your fondest memory of cooking at home?
1: Oh, is it possible to
0: choose a favorite?" It's
1: impossible, <laughs> but I must say, it's you know the holidays when I cook with all. Now it's my grandchildren. My my children have passed on, in in the second line, it's my grandchildren. So. <laughs> so it's uh, having my grandchildren around and grandma, and you know I I really get satisfaction when I know that I'm passing on our history in food to them and they you know and they will remember those those moments uh, when grandma is no longer here you know food will recall for them uh, what what I have for my grandmother and so on so mm-hmm. cooking with my grandkids around the holiday time is the best
0: your book uh, references your American dream someone from the audience wanted to know what's your next Dream.
1: I think uh, you know I've been so blessed, and I think I couldn't ask for another dream. But you know, uh, I am always one to say, you know, look at the opportunities when they're when they're coming. And uh, so, so you know, I I'm attentive. There's something that I would uh, love to do in the future. Certainly, you know, uh, I love doing my television. I love doing the books. Uh, I, I think evermore, maybe. Uh, uh, you know, sort of giving to others returning and uh, the food situation around the world, you know, there are people still that don't 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 have food. So work with, with those needy situation as I am evermore.
0: Well Lydia Bastianich, thank you very much oh. for being here on writers. Thank of you, America Peter on the stage.
1: Thank you. some credits, some credits you.
0: So before we go tonight, I just want to thank uh, the following people for making tonight happen. Uh, from the Music Hall, Brittany Wasson, Jana Morris, Ian Martin, and Music Hall President Patricia Lynch. From NHPR, Sarah Pleward, Erica Janik, Tr- Tricia McLaughlin, and Interim Executive Director of NHPR, Mark Kaplan. Music for tonight provided by Bob Lord and Dreadnought, Our photographer tonight was David J. Murray, whose work you can find at cleareyephoto.com. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. Peter,
1: can you show them your socks? (laughs) I have been
0: asked by corporate to wear these socks tonight, so...
1: Show them. Show them off. (laughs) NPR socks. For a contribution of 10
0: bucks a month as a sustaining member, these socks can be yours as well. There you go. Get
1: your socks. (laughs)
0: Thank you very much. This has been great.